Hi, everyone. Welcome to episode 122 of the Book Cougars, two middle-aged women on the hunt for a good read. I'm Emily. And I'm Chris. And I thought I'd start today with a poem. Emily started with a poem last episode. And, you know, both of us are reading more poetry in our day-to-day lives. And we thought it might be fun to share a poem when we come across one that really strikes us. So this is a poem that I came across because of um, Kathleen Rooney sharing that she had read this poetry collection called Pink by Sylvie Baumgartel. And she shared this poem. The title of the poem is Purple. So here we go. Purple. The hand of the Roman purple dyer reeked of rotten fish. 12,000 snails decimated for the trim of a royal robe. It was the most desirable color on earth. Only the most powerful and wealthy could wear it. The most prized of purples was like blackish clotted blood. Blood brought to the surface of skin is purple. By pleasure and by pain. By love bites and by bruises. I wear purple marks from you on my eyes and hips. So that poem just really, really struck me. Um, I think what appealed to me was the color, the history of color, and the combination of that with the body and violence and pleasure. I thought for such a short poem, it really packed in a lot. Yeah, it sure did. Wow. So again, that was Purple by Sylvie Baumgartel in her collection, Pink. Thanks, Chris. Little, little, um, kind of um, heavy there. So we're gonna, we're gonna pick it up here and have some thank yous. Yes, (laughs) we had some two new Patreon donors. Thank you to Wendy and Rachel. Thank you both so much. You might be listening to this episode long enough to know that we're working on our sound again. And we had because of our generous Patreons, literally years ago now purchased some equipment and we were recording together with really high quality equipment. And then when the pandemic came and we had to be recording at a distance, we kind of had to downgrade our sound. And with new donations, we decided to purchase another set of equipment so we could improve our sound again. Yes. So thank you all so much. And we hope that it does sound better on on your end of things. Yeah, let us know. We would we would really like to know the difference it is in your earbuds. Please, if you have the time, shoot us an email at bookcougars at gmail.com or just shout out on any of our social media. We always just love an excuse to hear from you listeners anyway. Absolutely. <laughs> All right. And so speaking of listeners and shout outs, um, we wanted to let everybody know that um, our listener and a guest on one of our past episodes, Colleen in Chicago, she had gone to the American Writers Museum in Chicago shortly after it opened and came on and uh, gave us a firsthand account of her experience. So Colleen has a new thing happening. Her birthday is coming up and it's going to be her second pandemic birthday and she wanted to do something bookish. And so she put out a call on her Instagram that she wanted to do a, a read along, uh, do a joint read with people not necessarily starting a book club or anything like that. She made that clear. It would be around March 31st, April 1st to read a book together on Zoom, you know, have a nice discussion. The book that Colleen chose is These Women by Ivy Pochada. I'm not sure if that's how you pronounce her name, 
P-O-C-H-O-D-A. These Women, it's a mystery thriller. It has just been nominated as a Best Novel for an Edgar Award by the Mystery Writers of America. I know it's a book that's been on my radar. So um, great choice, Colleen. And if you're interested in joining Colleen for that conversation, connect with her on Instagram. Her Instagram handle is Colleen K-A. Or you can shoot us an email at bookhookers at gmail.com and we'll pass that on to Colleen. Yeah, and I just have to give a shout out to Colleen because she's been on all of our Zoom calls for our read-alongs and also just joined our read-alongs before we were doing the Zoom calls. And she's a really smart reader and has really improved my experience with all the books we've read as the Cougars. So if you want to read a book and, you know, take it a little step further, Colleen's a good person to do that with. So Absolutely. Yeah. Join up. For sure. Yeah. And Colleen and I go way back. We were colleagues at Borders. So um, other bits of news, I just wanted to let everybody know that the next Louise Penny, number 17 in the Chief Inspector Gamache series, is coming out on August 24th. And the title is The Madness of Crowds. Ooh. All right. It's a great title for a pandemic release. It is. Yeah. <laughs> well, hopefully the pandemic will be fading by August. For sure. Yeah. Yeah. And then just one more thing. I think when I was discussing The Archivist by Martha Cooley in the last episode, I misspoke and said that the book came out in 2008. It actually came out in 1998. And I did a little research about sealed archives. And there are a bunch of seal, sealed archives around the world. Some of them involve still like World War II, the assassination, well, not the assassination of um, Kennedy, but his psychological profile that was done by Harvard University. Mm. So that's going to be coming up in a couple of years. Um, so interesting stuff. And another thing I found out was that T.S. Eliot's love interest, Emily Hale, who was a part of that novel, taught at Simmons University, which was Simmons College back in the day, from 1916 to 1921. She taught speech and drama there. And that's a connection for me because I'm starting library school there this semester. Big news in Chris's world. I'm <laughs> so excited and I'm, I feel like proud you know, not that, you know, I'm going to be doing any of the work, but I'm just so happy that you're pursuing a dream. That's great. Well, thanks. I do think that the book Cougars is definitely a part of that. The bookish world and just wanting to be, yeah, involved more deeply in something that you're passionate about. I mean, that's kind of what the Cougars is all about, right? Pursuing our own passions. So. Right, exactly. Our passions as middle-aged women, it's just a lot of things came together at once. And so I made the jump and uh, luckily got in. Oh, I think they're lucky to have you, Chris. <laughs> Thanks, Emily. <laughs> so what are you currently reading? You know, I'm currently reading three things. And it's unusual for me to read two novels at the same time. It just happened. I'm reading The Shipping News by Annie Prue. And that is for my book club. I was reading along and a little bit on the fence. I thought, oh, I don't really like the writing style at all. It's kind of choppy, some of the sentences, some of the descriptions, and some of them just completely fall flat, and or I don't understand them. That's always a possibility. <laughs> I don't get the reference <laughs> or whatever. But then on page 13, there were two lines that hooked me and made me want to keep going. And they are, 
There was a month of fiery happiness, then six kinked years of suffering. Mm. And I thought, wow, like, what a great way to describe a marriage and heartbreak. So that just hooked me. And now I'm reading along quite happily. Well, good. I was say because I love that book, but I read it so long ago, I wouldn't be able to speak to, you know, her style, her writing style at all. Well, I'm reading You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters by Kate Murphy. This is a book I got this time last year from Celadon Books. And it's so funny, it has been sitting on my nightstand, like if someone interviewed me and said, what's on your nightstand last January, this would have been there. And then even though I've moved, <laughs> it still has a place on my nightstand. <laughs> and I finally picked it up. I'm not very far into it. But her the general thesis of her book is that, you know, we spend a lot of time learning how to talk, you know, people take speech classes, they're on debate teams, it's considered a boon if you land a TED talk, but we don't spend much time learning how to listen. And that learning to listen is really affects how you understand the world around you. And it's becoming increasingly difficult to listen, because we have so many versions of distraction at the ready. Absolutely. So that's the basic idea behind the book. I haven't gotten very far into it. I do like her writing style so far. And I'm hoping to get it on audio as well. This is one I'd like to, to uh, do it both ways. So again, that's called You're Not Listening, What You're Missing and Why It Matters by mm. Kate Murphy. Fascinating. That sounds really good. So the other novel that I'm reading, and I'll just be brief about this is The Only Good Indians by Stephen Graham Jones. This book came out in the summer of 2020. Jones is a Native American man, and the subject matter is around four Native American men who were hunting and made some bad choices. And um, now it's 10 years after that incident, and there are some things happening. It's a horror novel. I should say it is a little disturbing. I mean, it's a horror novel, yes, but it's disturbing. There's some violence against animals and not just the hunt of the hunting variety. I'm surprised I'm reading it, but I'm I'm actually, it's one of those books again where I'm feeling a little bit like, oh, I'm not sure if I like it, but it's compelling and keeping me going. I know I've heard several people talk about this book that it is so scary. I'll be interested if you keep reading it, if you feel like it's scary. I have it on audio and it doesn't seem like a book that's in my wheelhouse. And then to listen to it seems really scary, but I'll, I'll wait and see what you think. Yeah, we'll see. So far, it's, it's a little bit more just disturbing than scary, but um, we'll see. I'm only, I think, like 25, 30% in and I'm reading it at night. So I'm reading it on my e-reader <laughs> because um, I, I did get a, a review copy through um, NetGalley. So it's on my e-reader. And last night, I ended up having to read another chapter because it was like, I can't go to sleep with that chapter on my brain. There's just no way. <laughs> <laughs> so I, I well, I ended up staying up a bit later because of that. We'll see if you end up having strange dreams. Well, I kind of have been but you know, there's a whole lot of reasons I could be having strange dreams at this point. <laughs> Okay, I'm also reading, um, I'm actually listening to another book, nonfiction. It's called Laziness Does Not Exist by Devon Price, who is a, 
a professor of social psychology at Loyola University. It's a fascinating book so far. Again, I'm listening to it on audio. And it is kind of at the point where I am right now, she's really talking about this, you know, the Puritan myth of, you know, ceaseless work, making you a better person, and just how really people are, we're killing ourselves by working too much and working too hard out of this fear of being called lazy or thinking that we're lazy or getting hooked into the idea that there's always more to do, which there is always more to do, you know, especially now for so many people that the line between work and home has been destroyed. Right. Yeah. So, um, so far, so good. Looking forward to reporting back on that after I finish it. Again, that was Laziness Does Not Exist by Devon Price. Great. That sounds really interesting. Are you reading anything else or was that? Okay, so you know what? I am kind of reading something else. You could you can call it that. Um, it's the best American mystery stories of 2020. I picked this up and, you know, we've both talked about how we struggle with anthology sometime, you know, picking it up and trying to read it straight through like a novel or, you know, you think, well, maybe I'll just jump around and read here and there. But then, you know, it just sits there collecting dust. So what I did this time was there's 20 stories and I thought I'm going to go through and read the beginning of each story, like the first paragraph or the first page if it's dialogue and just see if it grabs me and if I'd want to carry on reading it. So I'm holding up my list to Emily. As you could see, like I made a list of the stories and then I read the beginning and I made a little note, like, did it grab me? Am I curious? One note says trying too hard to be hard. <laughs> um, and then after I read each of these beginnings, I went back and I circled which ones that grabbed my attention and that I'd want to read more. So out of the 20 stories, eight made me want to read more. And I thought I would start by reading those eight stories. That's a great idea. Wow. This is like you preparing for school, I feel like, you know, like <laughs> get get a book, get organized, take pre notes. But, you know, that's it's a great idea, because it makes a big book that's not really connected in a certain way, have you know, like you're developing a process of how to approach it, which I love instead of just like picking it up from page one and saying, Oh, this story is not working for me, but I'm going to plow through it, which doesn't make you necessarily want to pick it back up again and read the second story, right? Right? Yeah, exactly. So I'm, I'm kind of curious to see, you know, if these eight really do grab me. And then yeah, what the other stories have to bring because you know, I am learning that you know, some stories I need to be challenged by, you know, kind of like The Only Good Indians um, or The Archivist, you know, both of those novels, I was kind of like, oh, I'm not really liking this, you know, but I'm still reading it because there's something grabbing me and I'm trying to understand what it is that's grabbing me, you know, and as somebody who's been trying to study the short story as a form, I thought that would also be a good way to approach it more systematically. Yeah. And they also say, you know, you're supposed to grab the reader right away. So, you know, it'd be interesting to see if you see a theme as to why those stories grabbed you versus the ones that didn't, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. yeah, That's really cool. I see. I'm it's funny, when I start a novel, I always feel like it, I compare it to starting a new job, 
where there's like, oh, I have to learn all these new character names, and I don't really know what's going on. And this is such so much work, you know, and then, you know, a chapter or two, and I'm like, oh, these are like family now, you know, so I'm not sure that I'm great. Like, I am always kind of admire those people who read the first page of a novel, and they're like, nah, this isn't working for me. Like, how do you know that already? I feel that way almost with every novel. (laughs) (laughs) That's really interesting. Yeah, because, you know, there are there are some novels that just the opening is like, nope, you know, can't go there. Mm -hmm. I don't like the voice or I'm not in the mood for that voice or that attitude right now, maybe, you know, but yeah, it's, it's good to be patient, I think. Yeah, maybe, maybe, I don't maybe, know. maybe, maybe I just not. end up reading a lot of stuff I don't like. <laughs> and then there's, <laughs> no, you know, too kidding. many books, not enough time. So <laughs> right, exactly. Yeah. So what have you just read? I just finished our read along Milltown Reckoning with What Remains by Carrie Arsenal. I started it in the paper version quickly moved to the audio and loved the audio because Carrie narrates it herself. This book is really good. I'm looking forward to talking with her reminder to everybody. This is our next read along and we will be talking about it on the Cougars on the next episode. So if you'd like to join in the conversation, there's a thread going on our Goodreads page, feel free to join there. And then if you want to get comments to us, uh, please do so by February 9th. We'll be discussing it on episode 123, which will drop on February 16th. Excellent. I can't wait to dive in. Yeah, and this is an export Carrie's exploration of Mexico, Maine, which is her hometown, the paper plant that most of her family members worked at and the impact, the environmental impact that the paper plant had on Mexico, Maine and still does to this day. You know, it is a memoir, but also there's a lot of science and intrigue about climate change and big business and things like that. So um, highly recommend it. Again, it's Milltown Reckoning with What Remains by Carrie Arsenal. Well, I read The Survivors by Jane Harper. This book is coming out in the United States February 2nd. And thanks to our buddy Kate in the Bronx, who sent me a, uh, her advanced reader copy So it's the fourth novel by Jane Harper, who is Australian's hottest mystery writer these days. And I've read all of her books and really love them. I enjoyed this novel as well, but it's not as fast paced as some of her prior novels. It's a bit slower of an unfolding. It's the story of a guy named Kiernan and his wife, uh, Mia, who are coming back to Tasmania where the novel is set. They've been, I think, up in Canberra for the last 12 years or so. Kieran left because of a tragedy that happened. His brother died, and he left. And he meets his wife, Mia, his wife, who also grew up, and experienced the tragedy that happened during this horrific storm that hit the island. Um, and they, they hit it off. They had a baby. They're coming back to Tasmania to help his mom pack the house because his father has dementia and they need to move. Um, So there is a trigger warning about the dementia aspect, which I didn't know about. And that's a challenging topic for me just due to some family history, but it's not, uh, I guess it is kind of a central part, but it's not um, weighed on a lot. So during that horrific storm that happened, 
two guys died and a young girl disappeared. So now Kieran's back, Mia's back, and another young woman dies. And that's what the mystery takes off on. Who killed this young woman? Why? And connections kind of seemingly are there to the the past murder. There's a famous author who's moved to the island who is, you know, you kind of suspect him. You suspect everybody, you know, which is what a good mystery (laughs) does. It's about a group of friends as well. A group of, was it four guys, three guys who were really tight at one point. And it's them, at least one of them, understanding that he's allowed to change as a man and is horrified by his younger self at times. So that was a very nice thread to see. They have this little baby who's like, I think, three months old. So he's walking around a lot with the baby strapped to his chest. And it just seems very nice and natural. You know, I think I've read some other mysteries where, you know, the the dad is involved in child care and it's, you know, this huge, you know, oh, the angels should descend on him because he's participating in the care of his child. There's none of that. It's just life. I do have to say that one of the things about the novel that I'm still kind of debating about, and if you want to read this book and you don't want to hear, silence your headphones for a few seconds, because one of the things about how this, one of the parts of the mysteries is solved is something the reader does not know about and cannot anticipate. So I'm on the fence about whether that was her kind of cheating as a writer or whether it was okay enough not to be a low, not a low blow. What would I call it? Yeah, kind of like a cheat, kind of like, you know, cheating the reader of not being able to of of not being able to solve the puzzle by themselves. So there would be no possibility because you didn't know about this thing until the very end. You mean right. there was no hints dropped or anything like that along the way. Right. Yeah, exactly. I, I'm sure there's a mystery term for this, bringing something in later to kind of help mm-hmm. solve things. I can't think of what that's called, but it's borderline that. So I'm really looking forward to talking with other people who've read this novel. I, I recommend it. I love this setting. <laughs> we both love the water and the the ocean. There's also uh, one of the characters owns a diving company. So he's there's this wreck right off the island. And there's a huge statue of these three people called the survivors. So there's that this huge statue. And then there are the survivors in the book. And you can interpret it a lot of different ways. Again, that's the survivors by Jane Harper coming out in the US February 2nd. Which is the day that this episode airs. The next book I'm going to talk about is Finley Donovan is Killing It by El Casimano. And it too comes out on Tuesday. I talked about this book on the last episode. The basic premise is that the protagonist is an author. She's struggling. She's on deadline. She's not getting anywhere with her novel. She has two young children. Her partner, her husband left, and I believe he's remarried. And so she's just trying to keep everything afloat. Her agent is hassling her and hassling her. So they end up meeting at a Panera. And she starts to talk with her agent about, you know, the plot points of this novel, this murder mystery, and the woman sitting beside them thinks, 
that she's talking about a real killing. So she slips a note into her diaper bag, you know, please knock off my husband. It's very irreverent and funny. If you have watched the show Dead to Me on Netflix, starring Christina Applegate, it's very similar, which is, you know, about these two women who get in over their heads over the killing of somebody, and then spend some time trying to cover it up and live with the consequences. <laughs> the added part of this novel is then Finley starts, she decides to rehash out her whole novel based on the true facts of her life, thinking like this is just going to put her agent off a little farther, and they fall in love with the story give her a big sum of money to write this new book. And so that's pretty hilarious also. So it's a book about a lot of, I mean, there, it's very comedic. You have to suspend belief on many occasions. Like there's always these scenes in movies and books where people dig a grave that I just find completely unbelievable. You know, like, do you know how hard it would be to bury a man that's six foot two? Like, that's a lot of digging. That is a lot of digging. <laughs> I mean, I had to bury a bunny rabbit. And that was a lot of digging just for a little rabbit. Right, there you have it. <laughs> <laughs> See, you're basically an, an expert on this subject, Chris. <laughs> so that's one of the things that when that's one of the parts of the book that I was like, okay, if Chris and I had to bury a dead body, I don't think it'd go very well. Yeah, no, it wouldn't. <laughs> we, you know, we both have bad backs, it would take forever. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> so there were a couple scenes like that where I was like, I don't know, Finley, did you really bury that body? But um, anyway, oh, that was a little bit of a spoiler, wasn't it? Actually, that was more of a tease. So. Okay. So if you want just like a fun read, not highbrow literature, I highly recommend this book. I had a really good time reading it. I liked her relationship with her nanny, who's the one that gets into a whole bunch of trouble with her. But at the same time, her nanny is studying to be a CPA, which I really appreciated. So they're, they're not like helpless women, you know, they're really strong women and career women, which I appreciated. So again, it's Finley Donovan is killing it by El Casimano. Did you read something else? You know, the only thing I read yeah. was the introduction to The Great Gatsby by Menjin Lee, the new edition that came out because I wanted to I attended an event and I can talk about that in that segment. Um, but I did buy a copy of the book to read her intro. Um, because that, that is a book, the great Gatsby that, that for I managed to not read it in school, which is a pretty good feat for an English major. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> the first time I read it, I think I was in my 30s, I was out of school, could have even been in my 40s. And I thought it was completely overrated. I thought, really? Mm. This is like a great American novel? How lame. Well, how lame was I? Um, <laughs> the second time I read it, I liked it a bit more and I understood it a bit more. My friend Kate, back in Illinois, it's one of her favorite novels. And we kind of went on a little bit of a Fitzgerald excursion. She was reading a lot of his short stories at the time. And he had an Illinois connection. So we went looking for some of the places where he'd been. So... When Min Jin Lee announced that she had written this new intro, I thought, well, if somebody can help me understand the book in a different way, like she could do it because she has superpowers that way, I think. 
I did read the intro, really got a lot out of it, and look forward to eventually rereading The Great Gatsby for a third time. I think I'll probably put that on my summertime reading list. Great. I read this little tiny book that I read about in the New York Times book review. It's called This Is Your Time, and it's by Ruby Bridges. And this is for young kids. It's a really tiny little book. I'm showing it to Chris. I'm sorry, listeners, that you can't see it. Ruby Bridges was November 14th, 1960, at six years old, the first black child to integrate an all-white elementary school in New Orleans. She did write an autobiography, but this is the point of this book is she really wanted to write a letter to young people about joining the fight for racial equality. So it's just a very small book that tells her story and encourages young people to be peacemakers for America. What I love about the book is there are all of these black and white photos of the time of when she was this six-year-old girl entering this all-white school, whereas you might imagine it was very politicized. She had to be escorted to school every day, and she ended up in a classroom with one teacher who taught her because parents didn't want their children to go to school with a black person. So part of the point she makes in this book is, you know, she didn't plan to become a political person. At the age of six, that future was kind of decided for her. Right. And it's been her life's work to talk about racism and equality. It's a lovely book. It's so well done. I really recommend it recommend it as a gift for people and also just a book that would be nice to have on your bookshelf to share, you know, if you have young people come into your house. The cover of it has the very famous Norman Rockwell painting that kind of documents Ruby Bridges as a young girl entering school. The Problem We All Live With was the name of that famous painting. And in doing some research on Norman Rockwell, I learned there's a Norman Rockwell Museum very close to where we live. Really? So when we can do adventures again, that's one that I'd like to put on my list. Yeah, Yeah. for sure. So again, this is called This Is Your Time by Ruby Bridges. And I really loved it. I also read The Other Mother by Matthew Dix local author to us. He's actually, when I'm up here in West Hartford, he is literally down the street from me. Matthew Dix has a way with words where he just says it like it is. His books aren't complicated, but he tells stories really well. And he also tells stories from a young person's perspective. Well, he's a teacher. He's a a revered teacher. He won Teacher of the Year Award in Connecticut several years ago, which is no small feat. And so in The Other Mother, we have a 14-year-old narrator, Michael, who lives with his mom and his stepdad and his one brother and one sister. He is the oldest. Their dad passed away very unexpectedly. His mother's working really hard to try to keep the family afloat. The stepdad's a bit of a loser. And he thinks that his mother has gone missing, that this woman in the house with him is someone he doesn't recognize anymore. And he has a lot of anger and he's seeing a therapist in school or school psychologist to try to work through this anger. He's gotten into some trouble, like punching the school bus driver and things like that. 
And he has some things to be mad about. You know, his family got turned upside down really quickly. And this is an example of, of Matthew's writing. This is, this is Michael trying to explain his feelings. He says, I got full, which is a combination of angry and sad and embarrassed and sometimes other stuff too. I just loved that. Mm -hmm. Like, yeah, that's a good way to explain how one would feel when they're just mad, you know? Then this is this is a description of his stepdad, Glenn. Glenn is patient. Assholes are always patient. They would rather waste a lifetime and win than lose a battle or even tie. <laughs> that was great. Here's another um, view that Michael has of adults. I'll never understand how adults can have the same arguments again and again and again and not realize it. <laughs> That's great. <laughs> it makes me wonder how many kids think that. But he's carrying a burden about his father's death that he's not sharing. So there's also that idea of how burdens can also make us feel really full. I really liked it. It was a very fast read for me. I thought he did a great job writing from the perspective of a 14-year-old. And I love that he had a therapist involved in the story, a school therapist. You know, I thought that was really well done. I highly recommend Matthew's book, The Other Mother, and his other sets of books. So if this is an author that's new to you, and you like a story where there's not necessarily tons of surprises, although that's not true of his other books, um, then I recommend this one. Again, The Other Mother by Matthew Dix. I'm going to just keep rambling because I read a lot. The next book I read was Cuyahoga by Pete Beatty. This is a tall tale that takes place in 1837. It's kind of in the style of a Johnny Appleseed or Paul Bunyan. It's about the duel that's happening over Ohio City and Cleveland, which are sister cities. And they've come to blows over the building of a bridge across the Cuyahoga River. And the main characters are Big Son and Medium Son and their brothers. And Medium Son goes by the nickname of Mead, and he narrates the story. And I did not like this book at all. This book was not for me. (laughs) I stuck with it because it was my book club book. And the only way that I got through it was to listen to the audio. And the narrator, Theodore Chin, did a fantastic job. Because what's hard about this book is it's written in heavy dialect. Mm and kind of improper grammar, which is really tricky. And so that part was hard. But also, I just didn't care about the story. Mm -hmm. Like there was nothing about it that was interesting to me at all. And the reviews I read said that, you know, it was humorous and funny and all that. I didn't even get that. I mean, there were a few lines that I laughed at. But really, the whole thing just didn't work for me. So sorry about that, everybody. If you like tall tales, or you have a real affinity for the area like Cleveland area, you might be interested in it. But I'm not even sure that there was anything historically accurate about it. You know, because it's a tall tale. So it's hard to know, you know, what's true and what's not true and all of that. So has a really beautiful cover. That's the only nice thing I'll say about it. (laughs) Cuyahoga by Pete Beatty. Actually, I should say that's not true. I won't say that's the only nice thing. I will say that if this is the type of book that 
is interesting to you, he did a great job of staying in the dialect, staying in the story and telling his story. You know, I think it was well done. I just wasn't interested in it. So what did your book club members think? Nobody liked it. Three people didn't read it because they just couldn't. One person read it and listened to the audio at the same time. Like they read it together, which I thought was really interesting because it's really difficult just to read it straight out. Another person like me just ended up listening to the audio, but all three of us who did get through it said the same thing. Like, I didn't care about any of the characters. Um, And one of my book club members also pointed out, like, there was no nod to the people who were there before, like the native peoples, Mm -hmm. you know, and that seems like a missed opportunity, but... I don't think that's really what the point of he was trying to make. But, you know, I think you do need to be a little bit aware of that. You know, especially when it's Cuyahoga, because that is a Native American name, right? Right, right. Yeah. Yeah. And that that land is so rich with Native history, Mm -hmm. for sure. The last book I read was called The Shadow Box by Luann Rice. Oh, cool. Thank you to Thomas and Mercer for sending us these books. Yes, we're excited. We're going to be interviewing Luann in an upcoming episode. So I won't go too deeply into this story. This book, too, is out um, the beginning of February. It's a beautiful book. We're going to have to do a video. Maybe we'll do a video later this week that shows listeners the book because it's when you take the cover off the book cover it's what do you call it the hard back cover when you take the jacket off that's what I'm trying to say the cover is beautiful it's it looks like a shadow box which is what the name of the book is you know oh, and it's cool the shadow box plays a very big part in this book because it's the form of art that the main protagonist pr- makes where she takes these little um, wood boxes and she creates stories with them with things that she collects out in nature. Luann Rice is the author of 35 books. She's very prolific. That's amazing. Wow. Unbelievable, right? Yeah. Yeah. But this book and the last are her first uh, forays into the mystery thriller genre. And her last book was called The Last Day. And there are a couple characters from The Last Day that show up in the shadow box, but they're not, they both are definitely standalones. You would have no problem reading either of the books without having read the other. And the characters that come back in the shadow box are brothers, Connor and Tom. Connor is is a police officer and Tom is part of the U.S. Coast Guard. So that's really fun. So they end up on these cases and they're, you know, dealing with different aspects of it. And I really enjoyed them. So I was happy to, it was like, you know, having friends come back for a visit or something. (laughs) The basic premise of the book is that um, the artist Claire Boudry Chase is left for dead in the very opening scenes of the book, hanging. Mm. Now, for longtime listeners, you'll know The Last Day was the book that I had to put down and come back to because the opening scene is a pregnant woman strangled in her own underwear and dead. And I was like, I just don't know. (laughs) But it's, it's worth it to stick with both of these books, I'm here to tell you. And her husband, Griffin, is the prime suspect. The story is told from multiple points of view. It is deals with domestic violence, emotional abuse, and also kind of what happens when secrets are buried in a group of family and friends. It also rang a little bit of like the upper crust 
all boys club that you kind of learned about during the Kavanaugh hearings. Mm -hmm. So I'm when we get a chance to talk to her, I really want to ask her about how any current events might have affected her writing of this novel. Yeah, interesting. Cool. Yeah. Yeah, wealthy people kind of being protected from their misdeeds. Yeah. So that's one of the themes. <laughs> mm -hmm. That's a perfect Great Gatsby connection, you know, how the rich eat the poor and, you know, they can just fade into the background protected by their money whenever a boo-boo happens or a murder. Yeah. The Shadow Box by Luann Rice. That's a great segue into our Biblio adventures, because you and I got to go on a Biblio adventure together to hear Min talk about the Great Gatsby and her introduction. Yeah, she that was an event through the uh, Greenlight Bookstore. You know, Greenlight Bookstore, they get their name from the Great Gatsby, the green light of that novel. Min Jin Lee was in conversation with Jennifer Bueller, who's a professor, and was also involved in creating this new edition of the book and background material. I love the conversation. They could have gone on forever, and I would have been happy listening. I agree. Such smart women. Holy smokes. So knowledgeable about both the book and just writing and reading. And one of the things that really touched me was Min kind of reminding all of us that, you know, when she moved to this country, I think she said she was seven, she couldn't speak the language, and she was very slow to speak. It wasn't that she didn't understand English, she was just shy to speak. And she kind of learned about being an American and living in this country through reading, which was one of the reasons she read The Great Gatsby over and over and over. It wasn't necessarily because of a love for the book. It was for understanding people and how they relate to each other. Right. Yeah. And, and she, one of the great points she made is that, you know, a book doesn't have to reflect you to be great. You know, there just has mm -hmm. to be some connection for the reader and I really appreciate that point, because as somebody who is gay, I rarely see myself directly reflected in novels that I read. And so it's quite true that there are other ways you connect with books. I mean, I do think representation is crucial, but that doesn't mean we need to throw out great books from the past or even contemporary right. books that aren't completely inclusive because people are telling their stories and stories are often very pointed. Right. Yeah. I also really liked how Min points out that in The, the Great Gatsby, and, and, you know, this is spoilers because it's an older novel, but, you know, three people die in that book. But most people focus on the glamour and the glitz of the Roaring Twenties. And I thought that was excellent, too. She asked the question, are we loving the wrong people too much? Mm -hmm. I thought that's a great question and really poignant for our times. Yeah, for sure. They did talk a bit about Fitzgerald and his reputation and his his work and just how he was, wasn't really great at depicting women. Daisy in the novel is really more of an ideal than a person. And men made the point that an idea, the ideal, can sometimes kill people. Mm. Yeah, that's such a good point. Yeah, so and then they talked about a lot of other writers and, uh, you know, men's teaching uh, books that they would 
combine with the great Gatsby to teach and things. And um, Jennifer Bueller had mentioned a hashtag that is popular on Twitter called disrupt texts. So hashtag disrupt texts, which is uh, used by people who are doing work on decentering the canon, the literary canon, mm-hmm. uh, which is, you know, something that's been on and off forever, mostly on for a lot of literary scholars trying to open things up a bit. Right. And for lay people, that means because it took me a minute to understand what they were talking about. Just, you know, that there's, there tends to be these common reading lists of books for kids in literature classes or general English classes. And this is opening it up. So there's broader representation of both authors and character portrayals in these lists, you know, core reading lists. Right? Yeah. So you know, when you hear dead white men, that's the old canon that was shorthand for the old canon. One of my main takeaways with that event was, boy, would I like to have either or both of those women as teachers what lucky students those are. Yes. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. I think one of the things about dismantling things is you have to know it to dismantle it. Or you right. have to know it to expand it. Dismantling, I don't really think that's a great word, probably a poor choice on my part. They're talking about disrupting it. Uh, but you, mm-hmm. you have to know yourself yeah. to do that well. Yeah, so I'm, I'm with you. I'd, I'd take classes from them every semester if I could. Or just follow them along all their, their events, if nothing yeah. else. <laughs> yeah, we pretty much stock Mingenly anyway at this point. So. Right. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Well, I had two other adventures. One was I finally got my hands on a copy of the HBO series Olive Kittredge, based on the novel Olive Kittredge by Elizabeth Strout. Oh, it was so well done, really. And it made me want to read the book again. But um, a funny little aside story, the gentleman caller and I have a hard time finding shows to watch. So we end up not watching much TV at all. We read, which is fine. But I was trying to figure out how am I going to watch this because I'm now living in his house and it's not a big house. And so I begged and groveled and asked him just like, just watch the first episode with me. It's just an hour of your life. I get to sit in your lap. It's a good thing, you know. So we watched the first episode. And for those of you who have read Olive Kittredge and or watched the episode, you know, Olive is like the curmudgeon we all love for some reason. You know, she's very ornery, but she's got a great heart. And he just after the first episode, he was like, no, uh, uh-uh. he doesn't like drama very much. And he really doesn't like tough marriage drama. So I was disappointed. But then, you know, we watched it at night. The next morning, we wake up and he's talking about it which I thought was hilarious. So it obviously, you know, had an impact. So second night, I wanted to watch the second episode. He said, No, you just watch it without me. He went off to do his own thing. And he came in halfway through the episode, sat down completely enraptured. We had we finished it, we went back to the beginning, he watched it, it was hilarious. So long story short, the gentleman caller was a convert, and he ended up watching binging the third and the fourth, um, because there's four kind of, you know, little mini episodes. So that's great. I was shocked, though, when I got on the library website to get the second. It's just the one. There's just one season and it's just four episodes. So um, yeah, yeah. And I guess I was reading and they said that they kind of because there's 13 short stories in Olive Kittredge. So I thought, oh, they're just doing each short story. But I guess it was kind of like a combination sort of things. 
I don't know if there'll be more, but it was fantastic. If people haven't seen it and they read the book and liked it, I highly recommend the series. And again, it just goes by Olive Kittredge. And then I also got to attend just last night an event with Luann Rice, the author of The Shadow Box that I was just talking about. She was in conversation with Rick Coster, who's a journalist at The Day, which is a local newspaper in New London, Connecticut. And this um, event was sponsored by our friends over at Bank Square Books and Mystic. It was just really interesting to hear Luann talk about you know, why she wrote this novel, what it's like to write novels, where she lives, because all of her novels do take place on the, well, I shouldn't say all these last two that I've read take place on the Connecticut shoreline, which she is, if you follow her on social media, she just has a complete love of the shoreline and posts these magnificent pictures. And she uses both real towns and made up towns you know, on the shoreline, which I think is interesting. And she spoke to to that. One of the things I just want to say that they did both talk about is the importance of local newspapers. Um, This event is sponsored by Rick Coster, who has like a one read, like a monthly read that he writes about in the paper. And this month, it was her book. And, you know, I've been thinking about that a lot, too, because sadly, many local papers have sunset in recent years. But if you have a local paper, it really is a great way to learn what's happening in your own community around community governance and, you know, not just the gossipy what's happening things, but just, you know, to to be a well-informed citizen. So here's a little plug for subscribing to your local newspaper. I still subscribe to the newspaper in the village where I was born and raised, you know, partly just to support them, but also because I do have a little interest in knowing what's going on there. And she did talk about that um, in her family growing up, there were a lot of secrets. And she's always been interested in that and interested in families and the mystery of families and how we all relate to each other. And you can really see that in this particular novel. Again, that was Luann Rice, and her book that I just talked about is The Shadow Box, which will be out the day that this airs. Well, that's great. You know, that's really interesting about using some real towns and some made-up towns. It's exactly what Anne Petrie did in her novel Country Place, which is set in the fictional, fictional town of Lenox, which is technically Old Saybrook, Connecticut. I wonder if it's partly just a way to prevent people from thinking you're just talking about them. <laughs> you know, I don't know. Yeah. We'll have to ask her that question when we get the chance. Definitely. Right? Do you have any upcoming jobs? I don't. I only have one with El Casimano, the woman who wrote Finley Donovan is killing it. And she's going to be in conversation with Megan Miranda, who's the author of The Girl from Widow Hills. And Megan Miranda is an author friend of hers that in the back in the acknowledgments of the book, they were talking at a Panera and chatting about their both of their writings. And that's when the idea for Finley Donovan was born. So I hope they talk about that on this event. And this is February 2nd through the bookstore Murder by the Book. Great. How about upcoming reads? I have two. I have The Islanders by Meg Mitchell Moore. This is a, a, a backlist book. It's been out for a while, but I just decided since, you know, we're in the heart of winter here, which I love, but I decided I'm going to do something odd and read a, like a classic beach read in the middle of winter because this is typically 
right around February, March is when I like to take a little vacation and try to go to water. And that's not happening this year for obvious reasons. So I thought, well, just do it in your reading life. So I downloaded that book last night, and I'm going to start it. And then I also have Speaking of anthologies, which you were talking about at the beginning of the episode, The Best of Brevity. And Brevity is a a nonfiction magazine. And they just published this book with 20 years of flash nonfiction. So flash nonfiction is, I believe, 750 words or less. And they put together this anthology. And boy, does it have a list of heavy hitters from... Roxanne Gay to Brian Doyle, Malcolm Belly, and our buddy Shuli Kaywood is in here. So very proud friend. So again, it's called The Best of Brevity, edited by Zoe Bossier and Dinty Moore. And we'll be talking more about this book in a coming episode. We purchased it directly from Rose Metal Press, who's the publisher, our buddy Kathleen Rooney. Is she the owner of the press? Yeah, she started the press. Yeah. Okay. Mm -hmm. They do the poetry on demand as a fundraiser for the press. So it's got a beautiful cover. Highly recommend it. What about you? I'll be reading Milltown by Carrie Arsenault. I'll be starting that this weekend. And then also on my list is To the Lighthouse by Virginia Woolf. I've read two of her other novels now, Orlando and Mrs. Dalloway. I enjoyed Orlando. Mrs. Dalloway kind of left me cold. So to the lighthouse will be number three so we'll see what my batting average will be like with Virginia Woolf yeah (laughs) (laughs) I think I read Orlando I was in a book club once where we all just decided we would read a Virginia Woolf you didn't have to read the same one and then we came together and talked about it and I believe I read Orlando Um, I don't remember being wowed by it but I don't remember that's just a great way to have a book club to do something like that. Yeah. Well, especially when there's a writer who has, you know, a, a fair number of books to do that, you get a good sense of their work. Yeah, we did that several times. I mean, you have to work on the conversation a little bit because you haven't all read one thing in common. But yeah, it's, it's fun. Well, that's cool that you're reading that good for you. All right, everybody. Well, here we are at the end of another episode. Coming up, we have a conversation with our mystery man, John Valeri, which we hope you will enjoy. John always brings some good, interesting author and book recommendations. We were happy to have him back. We wish you all a lot of happy happy reading. reading. We're so happy today to be here with our buddy, John Valeri, a.k.a. our mystery man. John's been on several episodes in the past, and he usually comes to talk about mystery books. But today we thought we'd talk with John a little bit about his reading in 2020 and some writers that people should be reading that maybe they haven't heard of. So welcome, John. Hi, Chris. Thanks for having me. Hey, Emily. Happy New Year. Happy New Year to you. We're so happy to have you here. I was thinking this morning, I think the last time we were all together to record was at the library in Middletown. And how much I can't wait until we can do that again someday or even just meet for coffee or meet at a bookstore or whatever, but at least through the power of technology, we can be here together today like this. That is so true. I'm so glad to be back with you, but I was thinking about that too. And I remembered us, you know, sort of being in person, which tells you how long ago that really was, but yeah, we are. Yeah. 
So John, before you jump in, I, I just had a thought and I'm wondering, you started Central Booking, your YouTube channel in 2020. How has that changed your reading life? That's an interesting question. You know, it's actually um, changed it quite a bit because when I started the show, it was with the intention of not just being mystery focused, even though, you know, the title Central Booking sort of lends itself to that. Um, so I'd say maybe 50% of the content has been genre related, but it's been a much broader reading too. So, you know, poets, historians, romance writers, fiction writers. Uh, so it's been great. I mean, it's really forced me to read more outside of the genre because as you know, I do pretty in-depth interviews. So I don't have somebody on if I haven't read their book. Um, so I'm reading at least one full book for every guest that I have on. And it's been great because I've read authors and books that otherwise I probably just would not have had the time for. It has made it a little bit more difficult to keep up with all my mystery reading too, but I try. <laughs> and you're still writing reviews right yeah still doing reviews uh still writing for mystery scene and actually I should preface my little talk today with the fact that every year mystery scene does sort of a fave raves section in the newest issue in the new year which I believe comes out in mid-February so they asked me to talk about you know five of my favorite crime related entertainment things of the year so I didn't want to completely repeat that so one or two of my recommendations are crossover recommendations, but that list will be a little bit uh, different from what I came up with for you guys. And I guess in looking back on 2020, the nice thing is it was actually a really good reading year for me, despite, you know, sort of the state of the world, I was able to lose myself in some really good books. And so, you know, when you have to pick five or 10 that really stand out, it's, it's nice when you, when you kind of struggle to do that because you've read so many good books. That is a good problem for sure, yeah. So what have you got for us? I can't wait. I'm, I've been, ever since we lined up this interview, I've been waiting to know what will our mystery man tell us? Oh, the suspense. <laughs> you know what I should do? I should just describe the book and not tell you the title or who it's by and so you can figure it out. That would be terrible. I won't do that. That would be a, great, would be a great mystery. Or a great game show. Oh my gosh, yeah. John, you just came up with a great <laughs> game show. Maybe one of our <laughs> listeners. I forget all my best ideas. Oh. <laughs> Because I say, I'll never forget those ideas, and then it, whew, I do. Um, so anyway, I broke down my five recommendations from 2020. I just tried to do different categories, so it would be sort of a broad selection of books. So my first recommendation came out in March. It's a young adult thriller by Natasha Preston, who is an author I've really, really come to like. She's written some New York Times bestsellers, such as The Seller. She has a new book out called The Twin, and I have to say, I was a little bit leery of reading it just because I feel like the whole twin story has been done before, and, you know, how do you give it a new twist? But, but her books have always satisfied me, so I said, well, I'm going to give it a go. So it's basically about 10-year-old twins. Um, they were 10 years old at the time, Ivy and Iris, and their parents divorce when they're 10 years old. So Ivy goes to live with the father, Iris goes to live with the mother, and they sort of live separate lives. And then you flash forward to their high school years and the mother dies in a tragic accident. And so Iris ends up having to go live with her father and Ivy and they haven't really shared much space in all these years. Uh, so it's sort of a reunion. And Iris, of course, you know, she's very isolated. She's pretty much silent. The only person she'll ever really talk to is Ivy. And Ivy realizes that she has to do something to sort of break her sister out of this rut. And so she basically says, you know, we're twins, we're sisters, we have this bond, we have a life, we're going to share my life, you know, this is my life, I'm welcoming you into it, 
these are my friends, you know, meet them, enjoy them. And then, you know, what happens is Ivy sort of becomes the outcast because Iris blossoms and all of a sudden Ivy's friends are Iris's friends and she's sort of living Ivy's life in a much more fuller and dramatic fashion than Ivy could have intended when she made that offer to bring her sort of into her loop. So it's just really, really interesting because there is a mystery surrounding the mother's death. There's really interesting family dynamics to see how um, Ivy's relationship with her father changes because they're very, very close until Iris comes to live with them. Um, and then there's sort of a rift there. And I just, I have to say the end of the book, I am still thinking about it wowed me but it also was like I need a sequel to this book or I will never like rest well again and I don't know if there's going to be a sequel to it because her next book comes out in a couple of months and it has nothing to do with the twins so I'm kind of like in that state of I just I need to know because it was a very compelling ending um, but a really really nice job of taking sort of a familiar premise and giving it an original twist so I really love her books for that reason they have that air of familiarity but they're also always really pretty fresh and fantastic the second recommendation this one came out in April and I figured I would give a non-fiction crafty type of recommendation and I remember actually mentioning this book to you Chris but it's Elizabeth George's Mastering the Process from Idea to Novel and I have never actually read an Elizabeth George novel but I am a sucker for these books as you probably all well know right now um, but really what this is, is it's a book all about the creative process of her novel, Careless in Red, um, which was the 15th Detective Inspector Thomas Lindley mystery. So that's what she's most well known for. And it really is sort of an exhaustive look at her creative process and how that book, you know, developed from conception to the final product that you can go out and read. And she takes you entirely into her researching, writing, and editing process, um, even with the photos that she took to come up with her setting, because she based it on real places, um, her early notes about the plot, character analyses, very much in depth. Um, and then you get to see some excerpts from her rough draft compared to the final draft. So you really get to see creative process in it. Even though it sort of spoils Careless and Red, obviously, it makes you want to go out and really appreciate that book. And for me, it was a reminder of how much work really goes into crafting a good novel because her process is very, very intense and in-depth. And she writes very, very long books. Um, but I, my hat was off to her because it's, it's a really incredible process. So people who want to learn about writing and see how that develops into a full-length book, I think this is a fascinating way to do it by just taking one book and showing how that develops through every stage of the process. So that was Elizabeth George's Mastering the Process from Idea to Novel, an excellent read. That sounds really intriguing. Like how, why did she choose that novel or what, had it just been her most recent novel? No, it actually, um, I think that she's had five more or so out in that series since. Um, so I'm not really sure what compelled her to write about it. I mean, it found her protagonist in a very dark place. He just suffered a great loss. Um, and so he basically walked away from his career and he was on a walking trip, like a very extended walking trip um, when he comes upon a body. So I don't know if it was just the premise or the fact that it was a very deep rooted novel, but it, it lent itself pretty well to an exploration. Cool. I wonder, it'd be neat to read the book then read, you know, read the novel, then read her craft book, and then read the novel again. I wish yeah. I had the time to, I kept saying, exactly. oh, I'm going to do it. Yeah. <laughs> 
All right. So my third recommendation, I wanted to um, give a Connecticut author who some people may not be aware of. And this one is actually the crossover with my uh, mystery scene fave raves because I included this there, but it's Megan Collins' Behind the Red Door came out in August. So this is Megan's second book. Her first was The Winter Sister, which people seem to really enjoy. And this one is a book about a lady named Fern Douglas, and she's watching the news one night and they're talking about another young woman, um, Astrid Sullivan, and she is a 34-year-old woman who has gone missing again, and Fern seems, you know, taken with her, like there's some familiarity there, you know, she has some memory, she feels some connection to Astrid, and her husband is convinced it's because Astrid Sullivan actually went missing 20 years ago. She survived a childhood abduction. Um, and so many years later, she writes a memory, uh, a memoir rather, about that experience. And then upon the book's publication, she disappears again. And the fear is that her original abductor may have come back to take her again and get his vengeance or her vengeance. So anyway, like I said, Fern feels a really an affinity for Astrid and she thinks she feels like she knows her for some reason. And so she ends up going back to her New Hampshire hometown. Uh, she's helping her father move, pack up the house, and um, they have a really tense relationship. Her father studies fear and basically has made Fern a research study. For her entire life so they don't get on so well but being in New Hampshire you know she's close to where everything with Astrid initially happened so she reads the memoir she starts revisiting the people and places from the initial case and then she realizes that there really is going to be a collision um, between past and present and that there really might be a real connection there and the cool thing is that the book is separated into Fern's story you know in the moment but also excerpts from the memoir that Astrid wrote which those things always interest me. And then the other thing that I really liked about this book is that the protagonist has an anxiety disorder and it is so authentically well done. And I think that's because Megan Collins herself deals with anxiety and she's been very open about how she wanted to channel that into her book. And there's just a real deep sense of realism, um, but it's also a very compelling premise as well. That's intriguing. Yeah. Is New Hampshire a character in the book as well? It very much is. It's very atmospheric. It's like you can't really set it anywhere else. When you start to read it, you realize, oh, yes, it had to be set here. Um, there are portions of the story that open in Connecticut as well, like Fern is living in Connecticut and then she goes back home. But yeah, there's a definite feel for the place. Sounds great. All right, so my next uh, recommendation is from an international author because I wanted to do that as well. So this author is Catherine Ryan Howard. She is from Ireland and the book is The Nothing Man, which came out in August. And actually, you know, there are some little parallels between this and Behind the Red Door, but uh, the story is this. At 12 years old, Eve Black survives an attack by a predator known as the Nothing Man, a rapist and a killer, but it leaves her family dead. So her family dies in this attack. Somehow she survives. And then the perpetrator, he escapes and he goes dormant. So nobody hears anything from him from years and years and years. And so one, one of the questions is why has he been silented? You know, why do we hear nothing from him? Eve, many years later, is an adult, you know, she's been living as a victim, and she wants to reclaim her identity, and she also wants to identify the man who did this to her family, so she writes a memoir, you know, does that sound familiar? She writes a <laughs> memoir because she really wants to draw the killer out of hiding, and then we shift to a supermarket security guard, Jim Doyle, um, so he's, you know, making his rounds at the store one day, and he wanders through the book section, and he comes across the memoir, and he becomes, you know, completely obsessed with it, and it's not not just because he wants to know about the nothing man it's because he is 
the nothing man. And he realizes that this secret he's kept for many years really is um, in jeopardy of being revealed. So he decides that, you know, he's going to probably have to have another confrontation with Eve Black to make sure that that doesn't happen. So it's really the cat and mouse game between the two of them. And you're constantly asking yourself, you know, who is the cat and who is the mouse? Um, but again, it's sort of one of those narratives that alternates perspectives between the two. So it's Jim's story as he's reading Eve's book. So really, really interesting, cool concept. And for people, you know, who like um, sort of the charm of Ireland, even though there's all this crime and chaos going on, it was, it's fun to dip your toes into that. So I enjoyed that. And I'd never read her before. So now she's sort of one of my must reads. Oh, that sounds really good. I like that memoir as bait. Right? And yeah, it was, it was so cool. And I love when you get like a book within a book, you know, that yeah. fascinates yeah. me. Of, of course, I have to ask the question, is it blood and guts or is it pretty? You know, it's tame? not overly, I mean, it's just, I think it's one of those things where it's more disturbing just to know what happened to the people. Um, there's not a ton of time spent on it. Obviously, you sort of get the emotional aftermath of it. Um, but it sort of reminded me of, you know, the, what is it, the Golden State Killer case, like I think that 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 she drew upon that a bit for the premise of the crimes and knowing about those crimes, I think so many of us have heard so many, you know, startling details about that, that the sort of the less you know, the more disturbing it is. So I don't think it's so graphic that people will be turned off by it, it's sort of more of just a, a subtle foreboding. Got it. Uh, my final recommendation for books I read in 2020 is sort of, I'll call it a nostalgia read. And I actually read this book just a couple of days ago, but it came out um, in November. And it's Peace of My Heart by Mary Higgins Clark and Alifair Burke. It's the seventh book in their Under Suspicion series. It was sort of bittersweet for me because I loved Mary Higgins Clark, as everybody probably knows. You know, we lost her last summer, but she was my first, you know, adult author. My basic reading progression went from Nancy Drew to Mary Higgins Clark when I was in middle school, and I never stopped reading her. Like, I've read everything that she's published since then, and I was fortunate enough to meet her, you know, many times, and she was just the most gracious, you know, generous person. She would make every reader feel like they were the only reader. So to read it, you know, you enjoy all those things that you love about Mary Higgins Clark, strong female protagonist, really interesting, compelling crime, um, a little bit of romance, but Alifair Burke, who co-writes them with her, brings just a little bit of edge. Um, so they feel a little bit more timely than some of Mary Higgins Clark's solo books, um, particularly her more recent one. So it's just a really dynamic collaboration between the two. And I posted a picture on Instagram and Alifair Burke left a comment, you know, saying, um, but stay tuned. So I think that she may be continuing that series in the tradition of Mary Higgins Clark. Um, but basically it's about Lori Moran, a TV producer who does a show called Under Suspicion. And they revisit unsolved crimes or cold cases and try to bring resolution. And through that, she's met a man, Alex Buckley. They have become engaged. They're about to get married. It's Alex's 40th birthday as well. Um, and so they all sort of gather at a resort spa in the Hamptons. And then Alex's nephew goes missing. Um, and they believe that he's abducted, but they have to figure out why. They are not sure if he was the intended target or if it was supposed to be Lori's son. Um, they're not sure if it's because he was an adoptee and maybe the parents want him back. Or there's the possibility that it ties in uh, with a case that her father worked many years ago because he was a uh, 
a deputy commissioner for the NYPD. And one of the people he put behind bars is now saying that the confession he gave was not true and that the man made it up. So there's the possibility, you know, that the disappearance might be tied into that as well. So, you know, just a lot going on, but really in the tradition of Mary Higgins Clark, no graphic violence, no graphic sex, no graphic language, just a really good story for people who like that type of thing. Nice. I should read her. I've I've never read her. I should I should read one of her books. You you should. I mean, even these they can be read as standalones. But I read somewhere that literally I think the day before Mary passed, she was on the phone with Alifair, and they were still you know collaborating on the book. I mean, she was all work all the time because she just absolutely loved it. Obviously, she didn't need to do it, but she felt really you know loyal to her readers, and she wanted to deliver for them time and again. I I know she has you know a huge number of books. Are there standout novels that you would recommend for somebody first coming to Mary Higgins Clark's writing? Sure. Where are the Children was actually her first, you know, suspenseful. And, and that was really great. I mean, people are still talking about it as a classic all these years later, you know, Children in Jeopardy, um, A Mother in Peril. So she really did introduce sort of all those familiar elements right off the bat. And that became her trademark and her style. So I always recommend that. The first one I think I ever read uh, was Moonlight Becomes You, which was, you know, great. I mean, I read it and then I read everything that she wrote since. So it must have been a decent story just because I, you know, that started sort of my love with her. I lied. That was not the first Mary Higgins Clark book I read. That was the first new Mary Higgins Clark book I read. Um, the first one I ever read by her was All Around the Town. Fell in love with it, bought it at a tag sale on a lark, and it basically thrust me into crime. And here we are talking about it all these years later. But basically <laughs> murder of college professors and it's got this creepy little cover with a bloody handprint on a curtain. You know, that's what sort of compelled me to buy it, but it's just a fascinating story. So that was all around the town. So maybe people want to start there. Nice. Just listener. So, you know, when John said I lied, his eyes got really big. Really big. <laughs> Do you, and I don't mean to put you on the spot, but you wouldn't happen to know the title of the first book that Mary Higgins Clark and Al Fairberg wrote together. You know, here's the interesting thing. The first book in the series, I believe, is called I've Got You Under My Skin. And it actually was a solo Mary Higgins Clark book. And the publisher liked the premise so much that they asked her if she would make it an ongoing series. But they sort of wanted her to do that in addition to like her standalone novels. And she said, I'm at a place where I really don't want to have to do two full books a year, every year. Um, so at that point, they brought Alifair Burke in to collaborate on the second book. And I believe the second book was The Cinderella Murders or The Cinderella Murder. All right. Well, John, we want to know, longtime listeners who've heard John before on our show know that he is a huge Marsha Clark fan. No. But we've asked John to come and, uh, you know, recommend an author or two that people should be reading that perhaps they are not. Sure. So I'm quickly going to recommend two of my recent favorite authors, one male, one female, both have, you know, a handful of books out and that I've come to know in the last couple of years and really enjoyed. So the first I would recommend is Edwin Hill, and he has written three mysteries now in the Hester Thursby series, and she's just a great character. She's a research librarian at Harvard. Um, you know, she's sort of got this larger-than-life air about her in a way, even though she's very quiet and she only stands four foot nine. Um, but, you know, researching lends itself to other areas of her life, so she often ends up looking for, you know, missing people or things and gets drawn into mysteries that way. 
She's an interesting, very complicated character. Uh, she and her boyfriend, Morgan, they're raising a young Kate, who I believe is actually Morgan's sister's child that they sort of had to take in. And so Hester very much becomes um, a mother to her, but doing all these, you know, things, uh, looking for missing people and stuff sort of threatens that relationship, puts the child in jeopardy at times. Um, but it's just really really interesting character dynamics and also they tend to be based around Boston so you learn a lot about areas in Boston and sort of the power and the prestige that comes with Boston so again you get that sense of place so that's Edwin Hill and he actually uh, is a graduate of Wesleyan which is a nice local connection and I actually met him at the Wesleyan RJ Julia bookstore when he was doing a signing there a couple of years ago so really cool guy yeah sounds like a great series yeah and Hester what a great character and I mean come on a research librarian like <laughs> why wouldn't you want to read that and then my other recommendation and I believe I may actually have recommended specific books of hers in the past but is Karen Catcher and she writes the Northampton County series which are sort of set in the mountainous areas of Pennsylvania uh, and there are three books in that series now River Bodies, Cold Woods, and Spring Girls. Spring Girls came out I believe in June, so that's the most recent. And what I really like about these books is they are very atmospheric. While it is a series and there are recurring characters, different characters become more prominent in each of the books. So the first book is about Becca Kingsley, who comes home to take care of her dying father um, and ends up involved in a mystery that goes back to her childhood. Um, and she's reunited with Detective Parker Reed, who was her boyfriend in high school before they're split. So then in the second book, Cold Woods, um, it's Parker Reed who becomes the main character and Becca's sort of a periphery character. And then in the newest, Parker Reed has a new partner, Detective Gina Brassard, and she is the main protagonist in the third book. And he sort of plays a supporting role to her. And then too, you know, each one takes place in a different season. So you really get a feel uh, for the area and fall and then winter and spring and I'm just waiting for the fourth book which obviously has to be summer but there's not a plan for that right now I don't think um, but anyway Spring Woods is the newest and it's about a criminal known is the spring strangler and basically if you body in the water every year a body washes up um, and so throughout the course of Gina's investigation she actually realizes that there was a surviving victim from one of his earlier attacks that nobody knew about and she's sort of torn between the desire to protect the victim and to make the information public, which really, you know, sort of is her duty um, because she wants to apprehend this criminal. But there's also a backstory about her old retired partner who's very much beloved and what he knew about this victim and why he never brought it forward. So just really cool. And I think a really, really great series, the way she rotates the characters. So you have those familiar characters, but they're not always very prominent. I like that. I'm sorry, John, I cut you off. I was just saying, I was just reminding people that that's Karen Catcher. So three books in that series right now, hopefully a fourth at some point. And she's written some more, more general women's fiction titles earlier in her career, but they still have, you know, mysterious, suspenseful elements as well. Oh, that sounds great. The Spring Strangler. Yeah, I got that right. <laughs> now that I wrote it down, I'm like, I don't know if that sounds correct or not, but you know, something like that. <laughs> That's going to appear in my dreams at some point, I imagine. I'm sure it will. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. <laughs> wow. This just makes me want to, um, listeners, we're recording in the morning and now I don't want to work today. I just want to go <laughs> yeah. get a, a new book out and sit on the couch and read all day. All of these sound wonderful. Thank you so much, John. Oh, sure. Happy to do it. It's always fun to talk about books, especially good Absolutely. books. Absolutely. <laughs> 
Thanks, John, so much for coming and talking with us. Thank you so much for having me. Wish you all happy reading in 2021. Thanks for listening to The Book Cougars with Chris Wallach and Emily Fine. We'll be back with another episode in two weeks. Until then, come chat with us on social media or on our Goodreads group. And if you'd like to contact us directly, email us at bookcougars at gmail.com. Thanks, everyone.